Hi, readers. I'm Jordan. And I'm Katie. And welcome to Not Another Heroine, the podcast where we break down the best and worst fictional heroines, those swashbuckling ladies who have to work a little harder than expected for their happy ending. We'd love for you to come read with us in our book club on the Fable app, where you can chat with us about your favorite scenes, vote for your favorite characters, and even help pick our next read. Or you can follow us on Instagram to get a sneak peek at upcoming content. This week, we're reading Daughter of the Forest by Juliet Morillier, otherwise known as I'm still going to call her Unag. Well, hello, Katie. Hello, Jordan. And hello, everyone listening. Welcome to (laughs) a brand new book. I am very much looking forward to discussing this one. Mm Mm-hmm. This is a good, I forgot how good this book was. And then I started reading it and I was immediately like, oh no, like (laughs) there goes my sleep schedule. uh, I know it's, but it's such a slow burn book. It's one of the few very like methodical slow books Mm -hmm. that I absolutely love, but like it kind of hurts to just take your time (laughs) with it. That's fair. I feel like I have more recently appreciated those like slow burn books because I feel like the, the setup makes everything more worth it like because i feel like when i was younger um which isn't really saying anything because i'm still young (laughs) i was gonna say how old are we katie (laughs) but um like earlier around high school i wanted those books that was like constant action constant you know something happening but like this one is a good example of those books that is you are immediately invested but it's not quick there's not a lot of like story plot points that happen you know like back to back or fast but uh is worth it and good and you're still invested the whole time i don't know it's a it's a hard balance i feel like but this you know juliet this yeah she does it perfectly um but before we okay before we get any further into this book <laughs> uh we had a uh our listener who recommended Graceling to us actually came back and had some questions for us. So here it is. I enjoy hearing your thoughts on this book. I've been wondering what your thoughts are on character growth and the main character's love interest. It is the one thing that I feel like is missing in both Graceling and Crown Duel. It seems like the protagonist needs to grow to realize her feelings, but the love interest is already there. And I'm struggling a bit to find the character flaw in both Shivraith and Poe. Oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> oh, and that <laughs> like was you uh, and I. what I like to do is their YouTube yes. handle. Are they called handles so, on YouTube? Account I name? I have no idea. Handle? I just recently learned how to work <laughs> That's in fair. the past few months. <laughs> so, yeah. but what a but, good question. Like, I, I know. I, you know, I saw this comment and I'm like, I, I was kicking myself for not thinking of it myself to discuss because we spend so much time going on on and on about how much we love Shivrayeth and how much we love Poe without really sitting back to consider like, oh, these are basically perfect men. Mm-hmm. Yep. There's no like and- sort of character development that they really go through. And I think the part that's like problematic for me is that you have this like emotionally mature, like well-developed in tune with his emotions, like male character. And then he's always trying to help the like emotionally immature female character. And like all the growth is always on her side and there's never any things that like he has to overcome. And then even with Poe, like towards the end, he obviously had like a significant event that he had to kind of overcome. But 
that was cut off. Like you don't get to experience that growth through the novel. They just kind of like cut it off and it's implied that they work on it together. But because um, I feel like uh, Akatar has the same thing. Um, Reese or whatever has like a fully, he's totally emotionally mature and then he's just waiting for like Feyre to catch up. <laughs> Even, and especially with Poe too, it's just, it feels like his, I mean, the growth that he does have to display is justified based on the circumstances, right? Like, is he really growing or is, did life just slap him in the face, mm-hmm. right? And he's already a fully formed person. Like, does that even count? Yeah. Like, I don't know. But... Because he had, like, so, anti-character growth and then he had to, like, come back and, like, mm-hmm. get past a really horrific traumatic event, which I guess is kind of character growth. Like, I don't know. We had, like, a regress and then we have to, like, go back. And Shivrayeth, I can't think of a, like, aside from his more, I guess, reserved attitude and behaviors and this kind of uh, closed offedness. <laughs> We're going to make that a word. I think it's a word. Um, I, I I mean, I can't really think of anything to fault that character for. I don't think so either. I mean, and it's kind of hard, too, because, like, uh, towards the end, like, the glove scene or whatever, and he kind of shows her the ring. You have this moment where he's kind of like not as reserved and he like admits his love to her and stuff, but it's almost like, oh, I'm glad you finally caught up. You know what I mean? He he never, yeah. he didn't have to grow and like purposely like show more affection to Mel because like that's the only way she'll understand. It was like, oh, you finally figured it out. Okay, now we can talk the same. It's like he didn't have to do anything. <laughs> You know, it seems to me like there's there's two extremes in in this genre that we read, which is like the perfect hero or the total anti-hero with so much emotional baggage and has dark twisty things going on, but it's okay cuz he's hot, <laughs> yeah. right? Like those are the the two ends of the spectrum and there's no realistic like human men with real flaws that they either overcome or they, or other people around them like acknowledge like, hey, you're not perfect and you need to work on this, but you know, I, I still love you. Mm-hmm. Can you think of anything that I don't sits in the middle? Think so. I feel like I may have read like one or two, but I can't name them off the top of my head. Uh, oh, um from uh Lee Bordego. Um oh, what is her book? Uh Six of Crows. I think is what it's called. Um, but that one, so the main character, Kaz Brecker, or Breaker, how do you pronounce his name? Uh, Kaz, <laughs> he went through this like super traumatic childhood, uh, super fucked up, is really cutthroat, and he wears gloves. Um, I don't want to like spoil this for anyone. So if you want to read this book and you haven't, just like skip forward 30 seconds. But him and his younger brother or older brother were dumped in a river to like die and i think his younger the brother was like killed already and so he was like gripping onto his like cold dead body because he didn't want to let him go and so kaz like permanently wears like leather gloves and he like won't touch anyone skin to skin but he has this like character arc with his like love interest where he like eventually like works up the will to take off his gloves and like actually like touch her face and it's this whole like you know very romantic scene without any actual like traditional romance but that's like really the only i can think off the top of my head and that's kind of like a weird one because he's a villain character sort of 
Now I need to read that book. <laughs> I have. <laughs> it's part of the um, the Shadow and Bone series, uh, like a same universe. Yeah, I so I saved all of those books. I saved all the samples on my Kindle because mm. I, I finished Shadow and Bone and loved it and hated myself for not reading it sooner because <laughs> I loved the buildup of that one. Mm-hmm. But I'm kind of waiting to explore more of that author. That's fair. Yeah. We have a couple um, trigger warnings. Is that? Yeah. I am sorry that I have to give these. Um but I think you should, if you don't, if you haven't already read this book and you are intrigued by the description, I would hate for you to start this book and for these to be like red, like super yeah. red. I'm going to put this book down and never touch it again because the story is beautiful. It's amazingly well written, but these could be like hard lines for people. So yeah. um, just going to put it out there. There is a very graphic um, rape scene about 150 200 pages in i would say there are several mentions of animals being mutilated or killed there's several assault scenes there's torture that's kind of talked around it's not as graphic as some of the other stuff and there's also mentions of some self-harm not by the main character but by a secondary character so that's a lot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like listening to it all like written out feels very hefty. Yeah. But this is I, like a 650 page book. So mm-hmm. like to put it a little bit in perspective, it's not like it's like a 300 page book and the only thing that you are experiencing are all of these horrible triggers. Um, it's, it's spread out. <laughs> it is. And, you know, I say graphic, but it is not as graphic as... I know has been written in other books. Yeah. So you know exactly what's happening, um, but it is not, it's as much detail as given to provide context for the story, I would say. I could see that. Yeah. But this is based on a fairy tale, a very, very old fairy tale. Mm -hmm. I I think it's the Children of Lear. It's like something like that, or the Seven Swans, or the Swan Lady. It, so I don't know anything about fairy tales. So the like ones that I know, I'm like, oh, it's like this one. Uh, it feels kind of like Swan Lake, but mm-hmm. a way more depressing Swan Lake, which Swan Lake is already pretty depressing. Oh. So that's like a high <laughs> threshold. <laughs> What's interesting, too, with this book is that it's it's written in first person. I didn't um, even realize this was in first person. <laughs> what? <laughs> so and that's why I bring it up, though, because you don't it doesn't feel like it's written yeah. in first person because the the language like the language is just beautiful in this mm-hmm. book and yeah. it's told with such description of the scenery and the other characters and you really feel like you get to know the world and everyone in it mm-hmm. so it's super like I think atmospheric what, i think is the word like you're like immediately launched in and you get all of the vibes. I feel like I just said the Gen Z version of what Jordan like literally just said, but it felt important <laughs> to say. Yes. Okay. Well, <laughs> to get our heroine rolling here. So her name is Sorsha. And shockingly enough, I when I went to write down all of my notes, I remembered all of the names. Whoa. Like That's I didn't fair. check the book yeah. once. I got all her brothers, yeah. I got all the secondary characters, and I think that kind of speaks to how vivid the book sits in your brain. Mm-hmm. And how individual personalities all of the brothers have, because uh, I feel like a lot of books kind of suffer from that, oh, there's a lot of people, but 
you can't really tell them apart at all besides their name. Mm-hmm. But these are all extremely distinct characters. Like they all have very specific personalities. Like it's very easy to tell them apart and you're not like totally overwhelmed. I want to say that Sorsha's father, like you get three or four scenes with him. Mm-hmm. Like he's mentioned more than that, but like you only see his character a couple times but you still get a very oh yeah clear sense of like who this person is. yeah he has all of the like overly aggressive paternal dad vibes you probably know exactly what i'm talking about just by that phrase like aggressive can never be pleased like shows a little bit of a half smile and you're like oh my god i pleased my dad like <laughs> <laughs> yeah actually that's that's perfect okay we we will progress in some way so okay sorsha is the seventh daughter of Lord Colum, the aggressive father figure we're talking about. <laughs> and Lord Colum is the like chieftain of a land like holding called Seven Waters, which is this forested kind of mystical place somewhere in like ancient Ireland. Sometimes after the Roman Roman civilization fell and before the British took over everything. So Sorsha was born, I think, in the midwinter solstice. It was like a winter celebration. Mm, mm -hmm. And so she was the last child and her mother didn't die in childbirth, but like died soon after she was born like that day. And very traumatic, like shaped the childhood of Sorsha and her six older brothers. And so her older brothers in order of like oldest to youngest is I'm not going to pronounce all of these correctly. (laughs) So Liam, (laughs) Liam Diarmid, Diarmid. Diarmid, Connor, Diarmid, Connor and Cormac, which are twins, Finbar, which is the best name ever, and (laughs) Padriac, Podrick, Pod. Oh my God, Podrick! That I only know that from Game of Thrones. (laughs) I should, I should have. (laughs) Do you get into their personalities at all? I don't, but we certainly can break them down. It is a fun piece. Uh, So quick speed round. Liam, think of the oldest brother in the Chronicles of Narnia. So like old, oldest boy syndrome, very serious, takes everything serious. Diramid, the like second son syndrome. So he's kind of like a player boy, has like a smirk all the time and like people follow him because he's fun. Connor, super serious. He like goes on this whole like mystic vision journey to be like a druid. So like, 150 years old in like a 15 year old body cormac he's the one that loves animals right oh no he's the one that's super good at like all kinds of uh fighting things Mm -hmm. and then finbar is like the way too serious justin bieber hair but it's black and he's like you don't understand (laughs) me dad uh that's finbar and then podrick is like the cute little like fluffy loves animals and like tinkering with shit and he's just like out there living his life and he's like I'm the youngest son. I just do whatever and I'm living my life. So that's the brothers. That was the best wrap up of some very <laughs> serious characters. Okay. So we are we are dropped into Sorsha's childhood. And like you don't get to jump forward. You just start at I think age eight or ten, maybe. Um, it's pretty young. And so we get all of these beautiful scenes where she's growing up running barefoot in the woods. She has no mother. So she's kind of like, and her father doesn't give a shit because, you know, he's a a warlord essentially. Um, And so she kind of is raised by her brothers and she learns the art of healing from 
Father Brian, who is a like Christian wise man, retired mercenary figure who kind of lives in his own little hut in the woods and like occasionally visits the little village township castle thing where Seven Waters is. I kind of imagined like and, a hermit. Mm-hmm. That's what that is, right? Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> yes, that's <laughs> so although Sorsha is closest in age to Podrick, I think she's two years younger. She has a much closer relationship with Finbar, who she shares this kind of telepathic mind reading ability with. And I thought, like, I thought this was super cool. Like, this feels like a historical novel, but there's like touches of mysticism and like otherworldly events that don't feel like magic. They just feel like, oh, of course that happened in our history. Yeah. So like this mind reading thing she shares with her sibling she's like oh like yeah that t- that's totally plausible i can see that um because i feel like yeah. we've all been to those places that okay so like we get magic's not real in like the real world but there's like those places where you're like if it could exist it would be here like old growth forests a hundred percent you walk through them and you're like i am not alone like these trees have some souls in them i swear to god <laughs> but it's like that vibe where everything is just like realistic but shift it like one step to the right into the hmm like there's some like magic vibes going on you can't really always pinpoint it but it's on like the the hair on the back of your neck stands up that vibe is like conveyed really well throughout this book yeah exactly um there's i was trying to remember a movie i've seen it was like a it was like a king arthur merlin-esque movie Mm. that has the same kind of setting. Have you ever been to the Olympic rainforest? Yes. On the peninsula? That's exactly what I was thinking. It feels yeah. alive. So, like, <laughs> And readers, if you've never been to the Olympic National Forest in Washington State, it is unworldly. Mm-hmm. Like the kind of green you can't even like picture in your mind. So yeah. check it out. Going back to our, our lovely <laughs> atmospheric book. So... There's a scene very early on. So there's a lot of um, a lot of little childhood reminiscing and like, this is how I grew up and this is what I learned. And Sorsha is a very like observational character. Mm. I don't think that's the right way to put it, but I she's, see that. Yeah. she's not, she's not a doer, right? Like she kind of reacts to the world around her and observes everyone else. Mm-hmm. We don't get that a lot in like heroines. Right, mm-hmm. she's a very kind of low key character, yeah. and I think that kind of contributes to the the reason why this doesn't feel like a first person narrative. Mm. I was about to say because there's so much dialogue between the brothers that it doesn't feel like it's first person. You just feel like you're part of the conversation or watching the conversation happen. She's about uh, she's like a baby. Oh, because di- oh, that's I why I was so was like young. disturbed in the scene. Um, I'll let you like talk through the scene, but I was reading it and I'm like, oh god, because you can just imagine they're like fat little fingers. Or okay, let's. I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, thank thank you for catching that age because I thought she was older. But yeah, you're right. So so okay, actually, let's get to the scene. <laughs> so she's out playing in the woods like baby Sorsha. And just so you know, you don't spend a lot of time in baby Sorsha's (laughs) brain. She's like, she, so Sorsha like relays stories she's been told by her brothers. Mm -hmm. So you're kind of sitting in 10 year old Sorsha's head and she's like experiencing the stories that she knows about herself. So she's playing on the woods with her brothers and she goes to pick this like very pretty flower. And just as she's about to grab it, one of her brothers, I think it's Finbar or Connor, Mm -hmm. 
um, yell at her to stop. And like she, being like a toddler, just ignores them and grabs the flower anyway, only to immediately find her hand like just stung and filled with all of these minuscule barbs. And I think they call it the star flower plant, uh, something similar. Star Wars? remember? Star Wars. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. the. Yeah. Cause that's why um, the scene was just so like, so for two things. So like one, cause you, if you've ever experienced toddlers or been around toddlers, they will just go and grab shit with their hands, not thinking. And you can be like, Hey, don't grab that. And they're going to be like, Hey, 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 going to grab it anyway. And then they immediately suffer the consequences of their actions. If you don't like eat them out of the way. Uh, so that's why this was so like, oh, that poor little baby with their pudgy little fingers and there's a bunch of little like pines in it. Like, oh, God, I can't imagine. But like this flashback also like so second point, this flashback kind of serves to set um, kind of the expectations of how Sorcia's relationship has always been with her brothers. It's very much the like they are all protective of each other. They all take care of each other. They're like one super cohesive, like seven person unit of like, you know, they do everything together and they understand each other and they like can respond to each other's needs. And that kind of, that theme kind of goes out throughout the book. And then especially when you get to the like, what is it called? Like climbing action? Um, When you're- Culminating? Uh, No, like the incline. When things like start to, you have some like, I need to take like a literature class again or something. <laughs> but it's like the up climb, like something happens and then the action starts to go up. Um, it This point about her and her brothers being so close and their dynamics is super important when that happens. So it like kind of sets this, it's like a fun, I'm not going to explain it. You're going to see it firsthand of how these like brothers and sisters like work together. Also, like with this particular scene, I didn't realize how much foreshadowing yeah. is built into this book. Yeah, <laughs> so, clearly. Yeah, this scene is super important. And you and I have both read this before, and I missed this on the first go. Mm-hmm. Um, so remember this scene for later on. Yeah. And then kind of right around this point in the book as well, we get another story like told by Sorsha via her brother's experiences. And that's the night that her mother died and she was born. So... And this is that kind of plays into the family dynamics that you were describing is like this, these seven children operating as a single unit. So the night that her, their mother died, the mother called each child basically to her bedside and made some sort of pronouncement, like descriptor of like, oh, Liam, you're the oldest. You will look out for all your siblings. And Finbar, you see the most like with your unworldly kind of gaze and that kind of thing. And she kind of gives them each a task or a token um, and then tells them to, I think, visit the forest, right? Mm -hmm. So the forest is a very integral part of the story. And she kind of has a sacred tree where she tells her children, like, come to the tree and I'll, I'll be there for you no matter, no matter what happens. Mm -hmm. So it's like a birch seed. Cause I think it's like some kind of magic, like the mom is described as being not half wild, but half wild in the sense like magical. Cause she like tells her kids that as soon as you plant that seed, like that'll be my spirit or whatever. And so that's how you can talk to me is like, the tree is like a spot where you can all be together and I'll protect you and we'll all kind of like live together still. Um, yeah, one of those very like metaphysical, magic-y kind of, you know. <laughs> 
Well, okay. And the whole like love of nature and preserving nature and having this kind of spiritual connection with the forest and, and the land uh, also happens throughout the book yeah. and kind of contributes to the the vibe, I would say. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> that scene is another thing that kind of circles back around later on. Mm-hmm. Pretty soon after this, we get to meet Colum, the father figure, um, who's like you already put it perfectly. Like he's distant but not cruel. He's just very pre- preoccupied with his like ongoing war with the Britons. Um, no one knows why they're at war except they want to take our land and we want to keep our land. And you know they're barbarians and they're gonna die. So he quickly trains his like three oldest children. Uh, so Liam, Diarmid, and. Cormac, Mm -hmm. I want to say, to like campaign with him. So they're all trained in swordsmanship and they're warriors. And Colum routinely, like upon returning home after like a battle or something, like has an audience with his children. Like I'm envisioning Captain Von Trapp from Sound of Music. That's exactly what I was thinking. (laughs) (laughs) He has them all like line up and like inspects them and he's like, you're Little growing well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Colum is is like particularly distant with Sorsha because one, she looks like her mother. Two, she's the only girl, mm-hmm. and she's kind of got her mom's like fairy wild vibes going on. Mm-hmm. And I feel like so, uh, in Colum's defense, kind of, uh, he's described throughout the book as like super distant, but I think it's somewhere somewhere in like the beginning middle part. It's kind of revealed that he was like deeply in love with the kid's mom. And so it was one of those, I feel like people have a very distinct way of dealing with grief and his was like to completely shut down. And I think Father Brian, I think is the one that says it like, that's the only way he can survive is if he just completely detaches himself and his like soul left with his wife. So it's like, yeah, he's a dick, but like he's grieving still. Not that that's an excuse, but that's why he is how he is. (laughs) No, I think so. That's another really, it's not a cool piece, mm-hmm. right? But it made me want to like have a prequel story. Yeah. Like Colum met Sorcia's Oh mom. my God. Yeah. Because, yeah, it was Father Brian who's like, yeah, your your father wasn't always the man he is now. Mm-hmm. Like he was a very fun loving and everybody loved him and respected him. Mm-hmm. And his, your mother changed him. Like, oh, that's another cute yeah. story. Like, let's get that Because I can too. just imagine perfectly. She was probably like yeeting herself through some like muddy, misty like forest. And then, uh, you know, he like stumbles upon her as he's like riding his horse out. And he's like, who the fuck is this like wild woman? Like, I need me some of that. And then she's like, no, I don't think I need you. <laughs> I need some of that. <laughs> I kind of imagine like Bridgerton season two vibes where she's just like riding her horse out and then they have some like fun little race and he's like, what the fuck? She like beat me? That's how I imagine the relationship. <laughs> Not that that's yeah, really that, important that to the story whatsoever, but. <laughs> Completely separate imaginary story yep. that we don't know actually <laughs> happens. But yeah, but that's again, like how good this book is because you just want to know every mm-hmm. single piece that's going on. So fast forward a little bit when Sorsha is about 12, I think. Oh, so before I go into that, I, I feel like I'm going to stumble on caveat after caveat. <laughs> Probably. Um, the reason why this book feels very historical and why you kind of have to approach it with a historical mindset is um, the ages of the characters. Yeah. So for the most, for most of the story, I think Sorsha is between the ages of 13 and 15 or 16. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like, the men in the book, and they're described as like grown men and warriors, are like usually no older than early 20s, late teens. 
uh, which tracks, yeah. right? Like people matured earlier, like they had lifespans until like 40. Mm-hmm. So it fits, but it might be hard, like a hard pill to swallow for modern audiences. Yeah, because um, it's kind of the same with Game of Thrones. Like they're all described as really young and then they brought their ages up for the movie series or the TV series. And then, because I think there's like this old random guy in the book, old Tom. He's only described as being like, 40 ish and he's like old like decrepit <laughs> right but that's it's realistic yeah, um yeah. so yeah um and sorsha like so definitely does not act like a modern day 12 year old mm-hmm. right she acts like i don't know like late teens early 20s yeah i'd say like mature child to begin with and then like setting compensating i would put her at about 23 24 maybe mm, yeah i would say like probably like i thought she was 17 and then i was disturbed when she said she was 13 i was like oh don't love that at all but because <laughs> she kind of has yeah, that like maybe. still young gaze on the world like the night night i can never say that word naivety not a nativity scene not naive <laughs> <laughs> I'm, someone please I, stop me. I can't help you on this one because I don't know how to pronounce it myself. You know, so oh my God. Rob is probably just cringing in his seat if he's listening to this right We have now. like one of these moments probably like 40 times an episode. Yes, uh, exactly. But she has this like naiveness about her, but also like weirdly. <laughs> making up words because we can't probably. pronounce yep. <laughs> Naive plus some kind of, you know, uh, suffix at the end took me a second to even come up with that i'm gonna stop she's naive (laughs) but also weirdly (laughs) mature (laughs) so okay young but story works with it yeah so she's about 12 her father invites a neighboring chieftain like a neighboring lordship seamus um and his daughter i remembered seamus's name and we never actually get a scene with him we like we get a couple scenes with the daughter. Can't remember the daughter's name. Seamus? Um, she- she- is it Seamus? I thought it was Seamus. It is Seamus. Not Seamus. <laughs> <laughs> not what? <laughs> oh, my I'm God. I'm not going to pronounce any more character <laughs> names in this book. I'm just going to be like the other Lord. <laughs> I I only know this from Harry Potter, so. <laughs> I give up at this point. I'm doomed. We all are. <laughs> And these are real names. That's the other thing. This is true. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, Seamus <laughs> and his daughter, who shall not be named, visit Seven Waters. And Sorsha is definitely not impressed by the daughter. Mm-hmm. But, like, she observes her older brothers, like, falling all over themselves to escort this chick around the gardens. And, like, eventually, after some, like, dearmit Diarmid and Liam like posturing. Uh, it's eventually announced that Liam and the daughter are engaged, and this causes Sorsha to have like a mini preteen emotional breakdown. Mm-hmm. And so she runs off to her room and is like followed and comforted by uh, Diarmid. But what Sorsha is really struggling with here is not like the loss of her brother to like this outsider. It's just this inability to reconcile who she is. And how she behaves with this other girl who's, like, not much older than she is, but has, like, an incredibly different, like, set of interests and behaviors. Hmm. And she kind of resigns herself to the fact that, like, Liam has, like, if not poor, maybe boring taste in women. (laughs) And, like, 
she kind of puts on a good face and like returns to support her family. Like there's a huge engagement celebration going on. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting. Cause like when I was reading that scene, um, I don't have older brothers. I have like younger siblings, but I can perfectly imagine that feeling where you're no longer the only woman in a group who matters. You know what I mean? Like it's kind of the, like I thought we were a group, but now you're adding in this extra person. Like who, who even is this chick? Like, she's not fun. We like, I don't like her. She's not like us. Like, who is this? So it's like the, almost like being replaced in like priority in someone's life. Like I can perfectly like imagine that craziness, but like your point is totally absolutely on track too. Like that makes total sense. Cause she's having this like I'm a wild girl and she's like doing, you know, embroidery. <laughs> I think both factors are feeding into like Sorsha's turmoil there. Like mm -hmm. it's definitely like a, oh, my brother's growing up and away from our group. And also like, who is this bitch? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what I love about this <laughs> book. It, it's like so dynamic. You know, I picked mm -hmm. up on a phrase or word and I had this whole different like interpretation of the scene. And then like you picked on uh, Jordan, you like picked on one word and then like had a different interpretation. Like there's so much there that you can have like these both fully developed impressions of a scene and they're both right. Like <laughs> I think this was the author's first book. What? Yeah. I Bruh. <laughs> I, th I think it is, or it it might have been like the first one she got published. Mm, that is so impressive. But, yeah, because this is like it feels. Uh, I haven't read a lot of like epics or like classic literature, but this feels like it could be in that. Like if they finally accepted, you know, fantasy into classic literature, like that everyone needs to read. Uh, I feel like this would be at that level. Yeah, I I think it should be there. I mean, it's just, it's beautifully done. And it started off as a sidebar here. <laughs> uh, this book started off as being part of a trilogy. And then mm. I think she expanded it. And there's like seven or eight books in, set in the world. God damn. Mm. Oh, is this the one where each brother gets a book? No. Oh, maybe I'm thinking. Oh, I'm thinking of Bridgerton. I... <laughs> okay. <laughs> Everything circles back to Bridgerton. <laughs> True. Um, there ain't nothing wrong with that, mm -hmm. though. Ugh. Can we just get to Benedict's story? Like, I feel he's, that he's so mm -hmm. cute and like he's like the golden retriever of the group <laughs> you're so right mm -hmm. yep absolutely mm. we do not have a benedict in this book that's no. probably for the best yeah so yeah. okay back to the engagement celebration <laughs> with sorsha uh not bridgerton so she returns to like the big dinner thing and this is pretty much immediately interrupted by lord Colum's men arriving like they storm into the castle hall with a captured britain and he's like described as this young warrior with golden blonde hair and he like you know a britain because of their light hair and their like taller build mm -hmm. and so lord colum immediately like orders everybody out recognizes that this prisoner seems like special like probably closer to nobility um and he directs his men to like take the prisoner away and just get as much information out of him as possible mm -hmm. and what i love Very about dark. this too is like this kid i think he's what 15 16 mm -hmm. um he's like described and sorsha immediately describes him as uh those kind of people that despite being beat up captured kidnapped uh is like defiant he like had his you know chin up high despite like being actively like bleeding at the moment but he was like no fuck you and then i think he like spits it 
Lord Colum, doesn't he? Oh, yeah, he does. Yeah. He, like, spits at his boot, like, just yeah. full on, fuck you, dude. Like, I love characters like that that are like, I cannot breathe, but fuck you, man. <laughs> dude, this character, so this character is quite heartbreaking. Yeah. There is a lot of, yeah, yeah and we're, we're edging towards that part right now. My soul. So... <laughs> Yeah. Um, and this is kind of where we start edging towards those trigger warnings. Mm-hmm. Um, so later in that same evening where the prisoner arrives, Finbar, who has always like been the most rebellious, you know, Justin Bieber hair-esque, <laughs> to, to quote you. Of the, I just can't get that out of my head. Yeah, like, the like emo, like, you know, yeah. <laughs> you don't understand me, dad. <laughs> uh-huh. So he kind of sneaks up to Sorsha's room to beg her help in making a potion because like she he she's very well known like even despite being 12 she's a very well-known healer and she's very good and so he wants to help the the breton escape for really no other reason than that he disagrees with his father's war and doesn't understand why the fighting has to continue Mm -hmm. and when i wrote this like i can immediately see why the entire family would be pissed and like would want to throw Finbar off a castle like turret because okay like yeah you're a child and holding prisoners is bad but we're also at war like there is no great solution to this he does have this little like uh fuck you dad moment before this where you know they're all being like lined up to be looked at or whatever weird thing Lord Colm's doing. Uh, and Finbar is like, no, I'm not going to go out and campaign with you. And he's like, what the fuck did you say? And Finbar's like, I don't think that just like fighting and killing each other is really going to solve anything. And maybe we should actually talk to them and just explain that, you know, they invaded these like mystic islands that are super important to us. And maybe if we just talk to them, uh, things could be okay. And like Lord Calm is like, blah, 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 spitting mad. Like, you don't know what you're talking about. You're a kid. And it's like this weird moment of like, okay, this, you know, 13 year old is very mature and is having like a little like moment. But he's like the whole time he's planning this like escape. He's like, I'm just doing it because it's the right thing. It's like, damn, okay. You're committing treason. (laughs) Yeah, full on treason. And like, so Finbar makes allusions to how cruel their father's treatment of previous prisoners has been. Like, he kind of is a little reluctant to share this with, I don't know, a child like Sorsha, <laughs> yeah. but he like, he's like, can we, can we do this? Can you help me? Because like, I fear for this, this man's life. Mm-hmm. And so she very reluctantly agrees to help. And the gist of this is she's going to make like a sleeping potion for the guards. Um, pause here because. I I know we're supposed to love Finbar. Mm. Like Sorsha talks so much like about Finbar and how close she is with him, mm-hmm. Finbar, but I thought he was the most annoying of what? brothers. Oh my god. I didn't I didn't like him. I, like I yeah. wanted more Podrick. That's fair. Yeah. Podrick reminds me of like the golden retriever type that are just like vibing. But uh Finbar, I always have a soft spot for the like emo kid that's like nobody understands me cuz like Aren't we all emo kids at heart? Uh, so I just thought Finbar was like one of those um, stick to your gun. Uh, what? There's a specific word I'm thinking of. Um, it's not there. Uh, idealist. Hmm. There it is. 
that he like yeah. has like really strong ideals and morals and thoughts on the world and he's going to stick to those despite maybe it not being always the best path and he kind of has this like deep otherworldly moments where he like talks as if he's 40 years old and can see yeah. things i don't know i he's like a fun character but he's kind of the like mystery like in the shadows He's definitely like he's a necessary character, mm-hmm. I think, especially for their group dynamics. Yeah. But like Podrick, I could have used more of. And I like if I'm going to pick a favorite, mm-hmm. it would be Connor. Uh, like, yeah. Connor, Same. hands down, obviously, mm-hmm. <laughs> for reasons that shall be revealed later on. <laughs> <laughs> but so next day, Sorsha has agreed to make this potion and she learns how mysteriously the prisoner managed to disappear <laughs> somehow between guard shift changes Uh-oh. and conveniently. <laughs> I think her father like left with all his men either the night before or early that morning mm-hmm. to like go pursue any like remaining Britons in the area. Um, so just very convenient timing with this prisoner escape. But after this happens, Father Brian, um, that's the like Christian priest hermit type, uh, comes to visit Sorsha um, and asks for her help to come visit his hut under like very mysterious circumstances. I wonder what this could be. Hmm. Um, Yeah. It's very quickly revealed that the escaped prisoner has been under like father Brian's care. Like, so in between like the prisoner escaping and then father Brian coming to Sorsha for help, it's been like a week or two, Mm -hmm. I want to say. So father Brian has been unable to like truly help the prisoner recover and they, this is where they start making references to like um, PTSD, for example, mm-hmm. like the the prisoner is waking up in the middle of the night trying to like off himself, mm-hmm. um, won't eat, won't take any medication, is just like delirious with nightmares um, in addition to like physical injuries. Mm-hmm. So Father Brian is very convinced that Sorsha in some way can help make progress with him. So um, she agrees to go to the hut. And visit him. And so this is another kind of, this is, if I was going to find any kind of fault with this book, Mm -hmm. it would be the convenience of giving Sorsha the ability to understand, like, the tongue of the Britons. Yeah. Uh, So Father Brian taught Sorsha and I think Connor. And Finbar, um, I think. And Finbar, how to, would you call it, like, English, old English, very old English, I I guess. Yeah, because if it's Brit. And it would be English. So they're probably speaking like Gaelic normally. Yeah. Sorsha. Sorsha hmm. and her family would be. Um well fun fact. But yeah. Um, so she knows how to speak English. Um, and she can also read and write like very well for a twelve year old. Um so that was that was the one piece that kind of deviated from like the historical accuracy bit. Like I get this is yeah. a fantasy, right? But it just kind of eh, if I was going to be nitpicky, it would be that piece. <laughs> yeah. But because I think all, it's basic. No, go no, ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I, I refuse. Because <laughs> I think Sorsha even like comments on that herself. She's like, I didn't realize at the time how weird it was that I could. You know, that we had scrolls and we could read and write and nobody else can really do that. So I see that it's like kind of removes us from a little bit of the historical accuracy and kind of like, okay, that's convenient, right? But I feel like it also kind of adds to the like mysticism, uh, magic-y mm-hmm. kind of thing. Like, of course, they know how to do this. They're magic and 
conveniently in this sacred little place, you can do whatever you want and, you know, historical realities don't matter. <laughs> it was definitely like a convenient touch, but it's it's necessary for the story to actually work. So Sorsha goes to the hut um, and the prisoner, whose name we like learn pretty quickly is Simon. Um, he eventually begins to accept food and water and treatment from Sorsha after like several days of cajoling and arguing. And she's just very calm, but persistent. And she stays awake late at night to prevent him from hurting himself and also to like wake him from nightmares. And um, she fills the time by telling him stories like of the fair folk. Um, and eventually Sorsha and Simon established this very tentative rapport. Mm -hmm. And I feel like Another, some of that like stems too because they made like a promise, right? Like, didn't she say you have to promise me that uh, you'll try to get better, and I'll promise you to stay here? Because I feel like that promise, that like joint partnership, is super important. Because I could see him seeing Father Brian is like this paternalistic, like, oh, you need to get better because the Lord wants to save you. But like, Source is just like, how about you just get better, and I won't leave you? And he's like, okay. Tentatively, yes. So <laughs> I totally forgot about the promise. And now that you mentioned it, uh -huh. um, so that's another piece of foreshadowing yeah. that I just put together. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Like mind blown. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was just so cute when I was reading it because it kind of has that like childhood innocence about it of like mm -hmm. it's not sexual or romantic when you're this age. It's just kind of like that friendship where it's like no we're gonna like stick this out weirdly because like i don't really know you but we're friends now <laughs> yeah because so 15 to 16 year old for simon and source is 12 and simon is also like oh you guys are just like barbarians mm -hmm. and like basically savages and don't know how like you don't fight fair you mm -hmm. use these brutal tactics and uh, so he's got these preconceived notions about like Sorsha and her people and her family. Um, also and vice versa. validated conceptions. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So uh, I, I didn't really go into detail about how, um, how much torture Simon experienced before yeah. he escaped. And it's significant. Mm -hmm. So they don't, the author doesn't explicitly state what happens, mm -hmm. um, but it is, awful yeah um yeah yeah so he does not like it's not just a, oh he was thrown in a cell and managed to escape the next morning oh no mm -hmm. they they tortured him for hours and he can barely function yeah and i feel like um, if you've read any historical fiction or you've seen movies or like even read actual histories of this area during that time frame like the shit they do is like big fucked up like not the whole like oh you know even just like ripping out fingernails that's like low on the totem pole of how fucked up the things they're doing is so his whole like ptsd thing a hundred percent makes sense like and i feel like you feel sympathetic to him the whole time it doesn't feel forced or like oh he's kind of like being dramatic about it like the whole time you're like oh i get it man <laughs> yeah so another piece that kind of helps him recover along with like the promise that he and Sorsha make to each other and all of her stories is so Sorsha's brother Cormac has a dog that he rescued as a puppy mm. and the dog's name is Lynn. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, Lynn has a very prominent role throughout the story from like the moment you meet this dog who's like a wolfhound hybrid kind of mm -hmm. kind of dog 
And so she, while Cormac and and the two, Liam and Diarmid, are off campaigning, so Lynn stays home and accompanies Sorsha. And so he's, or sorry, she, Lynn, uh, the dog, is with Sorsha, and she helps Simon recover. So she's, like, like chilling with him on his little recovery bed and, like, like nuzzling up to him. And it's it definitely a huge factor for helping him mm-hmm. kind of process what he's gone through. Yeah. Um, yeah, so... This I don't I don't want to spoil anything, but <laughs> for me, <laughs> so Lynn has a very prominent role. I'm yeah. gonna foot stomp that, and she has a very very tragic end. Ugh, so yeah. it is. <laughs> it is su- I know. I'm just imagining the scene right now. Um, Ugh, we get to we'll get to that scene. I think in part two. Mm-hmm. Um, but if that is another thing for you as a reader, where you just nope can't read it, can't got to put the book down and not mm-hmm. never return to it, like that happens. So probably stop reading. Yeah, if that's going to be hard for you. Um, I will. I will say it's it's a good end for a good dog, but yeah. it's it's very hard to read. Yeah, Ugh, I'm just thinking about it now is awful. It's like this is one of those books that's like you're gonna suffer, but you're gonna be happy about it. Like it's that whole Harry Potter quote all over again. <laughs> like there's mm-hmm. so many fucking horribly tragic things that happen, but it's also like a happy ending. So it like kind of all works out in the end. But like, oh man, are you gonna fucking work for it? <laughs> yeah, and so none of like none of it seems gratuitous. Right. Like it, it does upon like describing it in such a short mm-hmm. amount of time like you and I are discussing right now. Yeah. But again, you have hundreds and hundreds of pages to process all of this yeah. stuff. It's not just thrown at you. It kind of reads like but an epic. It does. Yeah. Um, like the whole series is very epic. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful. Yeah. Um, so one of the cool scenes or several scenes as Sorsha is helping Simon recover is she tells him these fair folk stories and you kind of get these little mini short little glimpses um as she's telling them and so one of the stories is about a pair of lovers who were uh, celebrated (laughs) i wrote (laughs) celebrated and i meant separated separated by the fair folk (laughs) yeah so in the story the man is taken away by the fairy queen for several decades uh like goes under the hill um, and he doesn't age, but he, despite all of these years passing, remains true to like his human love that got left behind. They're eventually reunited. And when they meet again, he's young, but she has aged. But in his eyes, she's just as beautiful as the day he was taken away. And so she reverts back to her young, beautiful self and they're reunited and, and live happily ever after. That's one of these stories that Sorsha tells. Huge hint there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ugh. And then, meanwhile, Simon also tells Sorsha some stories, and one of them is of these two brothers. And one is the older, wise, successful in all his endeavors, um, and the other is the younger, never quite good enough or loved as much as the elder. And the younger brother is given an opportunity to prove himself. But he kind of, Simon stops the story, and he's like, I'm not sure what happens at the end. Um, Hmm. Wonder what this story could be about. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like um, it's kind of subtle and I didn't really understand as it was happening. But as they kind of like work together to help Simon get better, uh, Simon kind of reveals some like details about the story too. And they're disjointed enough, which would make sense because he's obviously like suffering as he's trying to like tell these little tidbits. 
Um, but there's like one where he like betrayed on accident his like group and everyone died and he like woke up alone. So I feel like uh, Simon's character definitely has some like survivor's guilt too, where like he feels, um, and I think that's another thing too, is like he is super worried that when he was being tortured, he like told them something that'll like reveal, you know, details about where his family is or where his, you know, troops are or whatever. Um, so he has like a lot of guilt too. And I think that kind of explains why he like lashes out at short Sorsha uh, like constantly. <laughs> so like he also like the story is like in stark. <laughs> it's yeah. Yeah. This whole book is very dark. Like it there's never really a moment of shining bright rainbow. Yeah. And it's funny, too, because, like, when I thought back about this book, because I read it a couple years ago, I was like, oh, yeah, this was, like, a cute story, you know, the, like, swans and, you know, it's cute and happy ending. And then I'm, like, reading it again. And I'm like, what the fuck? Like, did I just, like, black all this out? Like, trauma, you know, <laughs> like, oh, don't think about that. <laughs> yeah, I it it is a fairy tale and it does have a, like, it has the kind of ending that you and I like, mm -hmm. but my god like it is not a happy story yeah it is it's like a real fairy tale you suffer. like the fucked up yeah. ones <laughs> exactly so just as simon is starting to really recover like you can see visible progress happening sorsha is rather suddenly called away like back to the home castle by her brothers who bring news of their father's return and he's not returning alone Mm -hmm. so oh and there's like i'm their goodbye scene is so fucking cute because he's like you promised I, okay, me you, <laughs> oh. okay you t i did not i didn't have enough details for the goodbye scene you tell it oh my it god i know this episode is already like probably like way too long but oh my god this goodbye scene like gut-wrenching so you know the brothers are coming up the hill and uh Finbar kind of like communicates via head thought to Sorsha. He's like, you got to hide, Simon. Like, we're coming up the hill. And so she's like, oh, my God, Simon, like go into the Briar, uh, Briar, Father Brian, <laughs> Jesus, just like combining those two. He's like, go into the cottage, like bar the door. They won't see you. And so Sorsha's like, oh, my God, like, what are you guys doing here? I'm just by myself, like ignore these like bloody rags and stuff. Like, who are those <laughs> weird um, and, you know, Finbar's like, okay, I'll buy you some time. Like, I'll take them back myself and, you know, uh, you can, like, ride on after us or something so that you can say goodbye to Simon. And so she, like, goes into the cottage and he's like, you're leaving? And she's like, I don't want to leave. I have to. Like, my father came home and, like, I have to go back. And he's like, but you promised me. And she's like, I know. I'm so sorry. Like, I think you're – but remember, you also made a promise to me. And he's like, yeah, but, like – you said that you would never leave me. And she's like, yeah, I know, but you said that you would stay alive for me. And like, you don't know, you're going to keep going. And so like, obviously super emotional, like parting. And then he gives her a little like wood carving. And then he, as she's like turning away, he like goes to like put a knife to her throat and he's like, you lied to me. But then instead of like actually like cutting her, hurting her, he takes a little bit of her hair. <laughs> My heart. So, uh. <laughs> Oh, so both the the wooden trinket that he gives her and the lock of hair are very important. And I'm kicking myself for not remembering it. Uh, I think yeah. the trinket actually maybe was given by Finbar to her later. But there's a trinket. Like he carved this cute little like fantastical it's trinket. It is Finbar. It's definitely, yeah, yeah. Simon gives, gives it to her. Oh, yeah. Hmm. But it's like this cute little trinket. So it's like he's been 
kind of a good guy the whole time despite like being mean to her and then he takes his her hair oh, uh. <laughs> i'm emotional I wish I, there are some episodes i wish we had video recorded just for all of your reactions i have a very expressive face <laughs> very but like the arms too yeah the like frill neck lizard arms came up as I'm like stressed out, like the hair. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, God, that scene it like ruined it, me because it also like leads up because there's doubt now. Sorsh is like, oh my God, like is he gonna make it? Like I broke my end of the promise, so maybe he's gonna break his end of the promise. And then like he runs away as we like learn later, and she's like convinced that he like just ran off to, into the woods to like unalive himself and so you're like oh like they were so close and then like the thing happened and the thing and the, the, the hair <laughs> anyways i'm emotional <laughs> it's i mean justifiably so <laughs> given this scene um well she goes home and then we meet her oh uh, yeah uh. enter lady Okay, I'm googling I'm gonna it right attempt now. to say this name. <laughs> is it is it Unag? Uh, how are to you, pronounce Unig correctly? Goof, the gooks. <laughs> Una. We might want to split. There we go. Una. Una. That man talked for forty five seconds before saying the fucking name. <laughs> oh. Well, Anyways. I read it as Unag the entire time. I did too. It sounds ugly and yeah. She deserves an ugly name. Yeah, it sounds no. more accurate. This yeah, she's like know. Ursula from uh, mm-hmm. the Little Mermaid. Little Mermaid. Yep. Yep. So she enters mm. the family as Lord Colum's fiance. She is very young, very beautiful, long red hair because, of course, of course, she has red hair, mm-hmm. and <laughs> she makes her presence very known. But initially, she is. Very nice and welcoming to all of the children, especially, wink, wink, uh, Diarmid. Mm-hmm. But it's that uh-huh. nice that's like, uh, what is, so sugar it's alcohols. mean girl nice yeah. is what it is. Um, sugar alcohols, like in uh, zero sugar uh, energy drinks, have that like fake sweet. That's exactly the parallel. Uh, that's the most obscure metaphor reference I think I've made. But I she's like exactly the sugar alcohols. I live, <laughs> I live off a of zero sugar monster. Yeah. So it's, it's that fine. like, you know, it's not real. It like tastes fake. But you're like, this gets the job done, I guess. But like, what is this? <laughs> it's like, it's the smile that like super Botox people give. Yeah. Like, no lines. Yep. No wrinkles. Yep. Just full fake. And it um, like doesn't reach their eyes. Yeah, Ooh. that's Lady Unag. Yep, Unag. Yeah, I'm not saying Una. She she doesn't deserve Una. Yeah. Um. So Connor or not Colum Colum is enthralled by this woman and like seems to cater to her every wish and desire, and Diarmid like obviously wants her. Mm-hmm. Like Liam uh, is engaged to Seamus's daughter and he's uninterested in this woman because of his other engagement, but. Colum starts to alienate all of his men based on his how he starts acting and behaving and the decisions he's making because of this woman's influence. And like some insidious things start to happen around the castle. Again, like 
Unak is being very nice the whole time. Mm-hmm. She like brings Sorsha up to her room and it's like, I need to buy you a new dress and like, let's make your hair and like, you deserve like to be a lady and treated well. Like she's saying all the right things, but it just sits weird. Mm-hmm. And, and she even has not- like a magic mirror that has like freaky red eyes on it that like as she's brushing Sorsha's hair, Sorsha's like, Oh my god, she's trying to like read my mind right now, and she ends up saying more like than she far means. As, like, yeah, uh huh. I also pictured uh, Snow White, the mirror. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Ooh, freaky. Yeah, very creepy. Um, and Sorsha, both Sorsha and Finbar are like, nah, mm-hmm. fuck this bitch. Like, yep. we don't believe a thing you're saying. Like, we know you're powerful. We know like we can't do anything, but we're gonna resist as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And so. Unag like starts to pick up on this and some, yeah, some bad things start happening. So Sorsha's herb garden and her like little storeroom where she brews all her potions and stuff is completely destroyed. Yeah. Like everything's ripped up. Everything's gone. Oh, Cause this one is even like double horrible because so what happens is like uh, Unag is like, oh, you can't go out into the town or like the little village anymore to help people and like heal them because that's not like what a proper lady would do. And Sorsha's like, okay, like that doesn't really sit well with me, but like, I guess you're right. Like, you know better than I do. And then old Tom comes up and he's like, there's like a baby in the town that like needs help and he's like sickly and she's like, yeah, I'll just do it this one time. Like, she's probably not being serious. And so she spends the whole day helping all these people and then she comes back and she's like, what is wrong with my and everything's like on fire and shit's like completely gone and like you just feel her heart breaking like this super traumatic and it just shows like Lunag is one of those petty like knows exactly where to hurt like oh you're not gonna listen to me I'm gonna fuck up your life (laughs) yeah and she does it to like multiple Mm -hmm. siblings so and this is so the dog Lynn Mm -hmm. um this is this is awful. So Cormac, let me backtrack. The dog Lynn comes to Sorsha and she has this huge gash across mm. her face. Um, and Sorsha's like fixes her up, like sews her up, gives her some stuff, and Lynn is fine. And so she goes to, I think, another brother and is wondering, like, who would do this to this sweet, gentle dog? And Cormac. This is Cormac's dog. Cormac runs, like, appears and just completely shamefaced. Mm-hmm. And it's because Cormac did it. He lashed out and, like, slapped this dog across the face with, like, a staff. Mm-hmm. And he just doesn't understand why he did it. Like, he went from, like, practicing fighting in the arena to whirling around and hurting his own dog. And... This is when they start putting the pieces together of like, oh, like, wait, wasn't wasn't Unag there? Wasn't she watching you train? Mm-hmm. And they kind of conclude that Cormac was like influenced or controlled to lash out at his dog for no reason. Uh, and then there was also the scene. So before Seamus's daughter, so Liam's betrothed or whatever, leaves, uh, she gets like really horribly sick And everyone is like, oh, that's like super weird. Maybe she like ate something off. And so they call for Sorsha. And this is like before all the like other crazy stuff has happened. And she's like, wait a second. Like she was poisoned. And like it had to be someone that knew exactly how much poison to put into her meal to like not kill her, but like warn her. And so this kind of like starts the like tinkling, inkling feeling of like there is something wrong. Like someone's trying to 
divide us up, try to separate us. Because like now the kids can't go to the dad and be like, oh my God, Unag, you know, tried to murder Liam's fiance because it's like they don't have proof. So it's that like super insidious where you're like, I know you're fucking doing shady stuff, but I can't prove it. And like no one's going to believe me, but like you're a crazy bitch. (laughs) Dude, and the final straw, and this is another really hard scene to read, is so... Podrick is known for being like the caretaker, like he's like the animal guy. And so he has like a donkey that he's been taking care of and like a a mother cat and her kittens and Mm. this like crow with a broken wing. And all of these animals just start dying off one by one. And like they wrote a couple of them off as like, oh, well, the the donkey was older. Mm -hmm. So, okay, now that's plausible. But the crow was like recovering like and making progress and then just yeah i think they described it his like neck was bent at a weird angle so you like double no it's like that's not Mm -hmm. natural causes (laughs) yeah and so they finally like liam the eldest brother he resolves to like confront colum his dad about everything that's going on because he liam is the closest with colum and colum respects him the most and is actually the most likely to listen to him. So he and his father are walking and and kind of having a conversation. And it seems like Colum is more receptive and is like open to hearing what he's saying. But just as they get to a point in the conversation where Liam is about to broach the subject of of Unag, this bitch comes running out Mm. and like runs up to Colum is like, oh, hi, honey, I'm pregnant. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, and he's completely distracted. And like the way the scene, because so. it's described from Sorsha's point of view, because she's like hiding in the bushes and watching this, you can like perfectly fucking um, like picture it. Like, so they're having this conversation and there's like a glimmer of like, you know, understanding and doubt in Colm's eyes of like, huh, that is like some like weird shit. And then here she comes, this like glorious, like glittering, you know, has the blush of early pregnancy going on. And she like has, you know, her hair flying in the wind and I imagine that she didn't have shoes on and her like dress is like flying up and she's like oh my god and like her skin's all sparkly and stuff and has like this pretty little like blush going on Uh, so you can like perfectly imagine the way it's described and then you get Sorsha's like this fucking bitch (laughs) so it's Mm -hmm. like this fun like oh yeah like it's like the almost save the day moment yeah and then it's just stolen taken away oh that's the worst oh my god yeah. And then meanwhile, like, Unag starts to hint that she, she suspects that she knows who helped the prisoner, Simon, mm-hmm. escape. And, th- like, this is kind of like the dead and dead point. Like, oh, they're like, oh, shit, we have to do yeah. something. Like, uh, So the siblings agree to meet at their mother's sacred tree and ask the fair folk, um, the lady of the forest, for help. Um, and they end up actually having to drag Diarmid along to the meeting because, like, he's love-struck. Like, we'll hear no wrong of this woman. Mm-hmm. Like, he was seen coming out of her room, yeah. like, late at night once. Yep. Just, come on, Diarmid. <laughs> um, so just when they – so they all gather at this tree, and just when they, like, they chant some really cool, like, foresty things. Uh-huh. It's very mystical <laughs> and, like, yeah. Like, Ceremony. I, I, can't, I can't – ceremonial. Like, I can't do justice to, like – how it's described the ceremony is, but it's very like thoughtful and respectful. So they complete their summoning ritual and a cloaked woman like appears on the lakeshore, like out of nowhere. And they just breathe this huge sigh of relief until surprise, a bitch is back. (laughs) And 
the brothers just yell at Sorsha to run. And she goes scrambling into the forest, just hauling balls, like doesn't pause. She listens to her brothers and goes. <laughs> and she's accompanied by Lynn. Like Lynn runs after her. And just as she like makes her escape, like she turns around and starts to see her brothers um, turning and her last vision of her six brothers are them turning into swans. Yeah. And like this scene, like bad as is, except of course, so Finbar is obviously like turning into a swan going through this traumatic event. And so he can't help but like project his thoughts out to his sister. So his sister, even though, you know, she was like escaped and, you know, got out alive and like whole, she has to still experience it secondhand through Finbar's like a perspective as she's just like oh you guys are so stupid you really thought that the lady of the forest was going to come and save you like ha 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 like you don't know anything about fucking magic and then like experiences the trauma of like not only feeling that transformation herself but also the like herself having to watch all of her brothers turn into swans like the whole scene is just so like ah, and then you cry like as if it couldn't get any, <laughs> yeah. any worse as if it couldn't get any more sad <laughs> like and this is <sighs> this is the first i don't know 150 mm -hmm. pages yeah it's, we are not far into the book yep it seems like a lot has happened but just really trauma bonding like prequel. <laughs> yeah. yeah so Bruh. that's a lot yeah that's a lot for part one yep. <laughs> And it's funny, too, because we were talking about, like, how how many episodes we wanted to do for this book. And we were both like, oh, you know, there's, like, not a lot of, like, plot points that really happen. Because, like, when you think back, like, not a lot really did happen, like, specific points. But there's so much to talk about. And we're like, oh, yeah, there's, like, these will be short episodes. An hour and something. No, it never <laughs> happens like that. No. Just never. Because there's just so many good things that are worth discussing in this book. That's, like. Mm -hmm. It, you know it's a good book when you just want to, like, digest and look at each little phrase and be like, oh, my God, like, this points to this. <laughs> and just, like, sit in admiration of this author mm -hmm. who created this. It's magical. Oh, also, final point, yeah. like, completely out of source of story. <laughs> so this author also wrote, I think, at least two um, fantasy books that are geared towards younger readers. Mm -hmm. And by younger, I mean, like, teens. Mm -hmm. So these would be, like, true YA, new A books. Mm. So a lot of the more graphic um, trigger warning level stuff doesn't happen in those books. Mm -hmm. So if, if you are looking for something by this author with the same level of like great description, I would check out those two books. Yeah. Oh, I might have so, to read those. <laughs> well, that wraps up part one. Mm -hmm. So from our shelf to yours. We'll see you on the next page. Hi, readers. If you'd like to help us pick our next book, send us a message on Instagram. Or if you'd like to just listen, we post new episodes every Monday on Spotify, Amazon, or Apple Music. Thanks for listening.